Good morning. Thank you, Ken, for reading our text today. Uh, before we get into it, I do want to uh, mention one more announcement uh, that Josh did not mention. Uh, two, two Sundays from now, today's the 6th, 13th, 20th, November 20th. It's our normal spirit-led evening, right? Third Sundays of the month, we have our spirit-led night right here in this room. And uh, it's a time of sharing. It's a time of worship. It's a time of prayer. Uh, this one, however, we are doing our, our Mercy Hill Thanksgiving, uh, which I love because uh, there is a, a group, a um, couple of people in our congregation that this has been put on their heart. Uh, one person in particular has brought it to us and uh, really... With, with a heart for us to share a meal together in thanksgiving unto God. And I thought, what better way to come together and uh, to express our gratitude in this Thanksgiving season, come together as a congregation. And so we're going to work this in conjunction with our Spirit-led night. We'll have a meal together, a Thanksgiving meal together. Uh, we will have a time, just a really brief time, maybe a couple of songs. But really, I want the night to be about gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for us. And so if God has put a testimony in your heart of his goodness, if there is something that you could come and share and give thanks and praise to God, I would want you to share it that evening with us. And so I hope you plan on being there. There will be an email that goes out uh, later this week with a Sign Up Genius link to it. We do need people to sign up because, of course, we will need to know how much food to have prepared, to have ready. But then also there'll be an opportunity for us to bring in some, maybe a side dish, maybe a dessert, something to share in that evening as well. And so um, I'm looking forward to it. It is something that we've talked about doing with our Spirit-led nights where when you look at the scriptures, how the disciples got together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to breaking bread in their homes together. And what a, what a cool thing for us to be able to do, to come together on a Spirit-led evening uh, in this Thanksgiving season to share a meal together and give praise unto our God. So make sure you're there. Make sure you sign up. I'll probably have a physical sign up next week as well that will pass through the congregation. Again, we need to know who's going to be there to uh, know how much food, probably turkey, that we're going to have with all of you. And uh, of course, then you can tell us all those yummy side dishes or desserts that you have planned. That's one of my favorite. I'll just be honest. One of my favorite things about Thanksgiving is the side dishes. Like turkey's great, but I like I, and it's. I'm a stuffing guy, love stuff, right? Anybody? Yes, stuffing. I, it's so funny because it's breadcrumbs. That's all it is. But it, it is so good. Uh, my mouth is full of spit right now. Let's get out of here and go eat lunch. No, I'm just kidding. So join us uh, Sunday, November uh, 20th. Instead of our normal spirit-led time of 6 p.m., I think we're going to move it f uh, forward a little bit to 5 p.m. just so that we have enough time and, and it's not too late and we're not all starving. Uh, together. So uh, Sunday, November 20th at 5 p.m., MH Thanksgiving. Let's start off this morning with this. How about this? He is risen. Right? Feels weird, doesn't it? It's November. You're wearing flannels. You're not wearing a purple shirt that your wife bought you. But that reality, that reality that we normally reserve for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, that reality is the reality that you and I live in every day. That we serve a risen Lord, a God who is alive, a God that is, not, is no longer dead. 
but that his, in his death that we talked about last week, he has accomplished something so great, so magnificent. And today we're going to look at the resurrection that puts that stamp, that final stamp of conquering, that final stamp of winning on top of it, validating everything Christ ever said or did. Last week we were in the middle of the crucifixion. And over the last few weeks, I've been encouraging us to personalize these texts, to personalize these moments, to feel the weight of Christ's sacrifice and his love for you and for me. Last week, we looked at those final words, those last few words that Christ proclaimed, cried out from the cross to telestai, right? It is finished. We looked at how... uh, that word carries with it so much weight that his work is complete, that his obedience is complete. I really try to focus in on Christ's obedience, right? He came into this world not to do his will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that he would be crushed for you and for me. To telestai, that it comes from a Greek word, uh, teleos, which has in it, it's, it's actually fun because Pastor Tommy has a, a $4 church word that he likes to use quite a bit, Pastor Tommy down in Bayview, and he would always talk about our teleology, right? And it's basically a big fancy $4 word for our purpose or our significance. And so as Christ cries out to telestai, right, it is complete. My purpose is complete. My work and my reason for coming is complete, He dies on the cross for you and for me. Another use of the word tetelestai that I didn't touch on at all last week was in the commercial world, in the in the ancient world, in the in the commercial realms, this word in the marketplace or in the banking world, this word would be stamped on a receipt, carrying with it the meaning that it is now paid in full. We know from Romans that the wages of sin is death. And Christ's death paid for our sin. He picks up our tab. Have you ever been in that situation? You ever been at the table where you're fighting with grandma over who's going to pay the bill? Right? Christ picked up your tab. You ever gotten a bill that was unexpected but was like really significant? Think about like car repairs. Like you ever have a transmission go out and you're going, okay, where, what do I do now? This is a significant bill thousands, but, but then it's, it's, it's only thousands of dollars. Like the bill on our sin will come due. The bill on our sin is only satisfied, made complete, paid by death. Will it be your death? Will it be your eternal death or Christ's death? The eternal one who died a once and for all death as we saw in Hebrews last week that he stood in our place and died for our sins. He picked up our tab. And so by faith, by faith, we receive Christ. By faith, we put our trust and our life in his hands and his righteousness, his sacrifice, his atonement is laid on us and it is declared, it is finished, paid in full. Have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus? Have you put your life in his hands? Have you allowed his blood shed, poured out on that cross to cover every one of your sins and declare you right before a holy God? 
Place your faith in Christ Jesus. Receive him and his gift by faith this morning. In this week's text that we just heard Ken read for us, we're looking at the resurrection, something that John Calvin calls the most important article of our faith, and without it, without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. It is the focal point of the redemption story. It is the focal point of all of history. The moment where Christ dies and is raised is the focal point of our faith. David, Kut- David Gutzik, he says, if the cross is the it is finished moment, the declaration that it's paid in full, the resurrection is the receipt. The resurrection is the receipt. It's one thing to pay a debt, right? And to say, I'm finished. Have you ever like paid off a credit card debt, right? You're sitting there going, it's finished. I'm done. Get off my back, Capital One, right? Me and Dave Ramsey, we have conquered you. It's another thing when the one who receives the payment declares it is finished, right? It's one thing to pay the bill and go, I'm done. Finally paid it. But when that person receives that bill, when they receive that payment, like you pay off your car and in the, the bank then gives you the title to the car and a lien waiver saying it is paid in full. The Lord Jesus dies. And his resurrection is the Father saying it's paid in full. The debt that was due on the sin is paid by my son, Jesus. It's not just us. It's not just Jesus. It is the Father accepting the sacrifice of the Son for the payment for you and for me. Let's read our text. We're going to work our way kind of through this scene this morning. So let's work our way through the text, um, almost line by line, but let's just work our way through. Verse 1, it says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Okay, so this is the first day. It is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. It is Easter. We mistakenly have grouped Saturday and Sunday together as the weekend, right? We look at it as it's the end of the week. Monday's the start of a new week. Monday's the start. You're gonna, tomorrow you're going to hit the grind once again. You're going to go to work and you're going to be stuck in that cubicle and you're going to do what you do. But today is the start of the week. Today is the first day of the week. Today we come together as the church of Jesus Christ because of Resurrection Sunday. Because it was a Sunday that Christ was raised We come together and we start our week this way. We don't start our week tomorrow. As a first offering, as a first fruits, we come together in this first day of the week. We celebrate and proclaim and bring glory to the name of Jesus. Do you realize that? It's why we meet on Sundays. The true Christian church has commemorated this central event with worship and praise even the breaking of bread, way back in Acts. So Mary gets there early. At the breaking of dawn, it was still dark out. I, on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings is like my earliest day of the week. Doesn't matter if I'm completely done with my sermon or if there's little things that I want to make tweaks with. I am up before the sun every Sunday. And part of it is, is I love to see the sun come up. 
I love on this dawning, on this day, on this day where we're coming to worship, I love to see that break of dawn in Christ Jesus is our light. It's that image, right? He's coming up out of the darkest tomb, out of the dirt, like death. Nothing is darker than death. And the light of the world breaks through. There's Mary. She's coming. She is eager to get to that tomb. She can't even wait for the light of day. That Saturday would have been the Sabbath. There wouldn't have been any morning at the tomb on the Sabbath day. So she had to wait a whole day. She's probably just eager. I can't wait to get to that tomb. And it was custom back in the day for, for women particularly to go to the tomb and mourn for days after the loved one had passed. Saturday was a Sabbath. There was no morning on that day. There was no, there was no time to go there. there was, like, that was not allowed. That, but so that early, early that first day, I got to get to the tomb John points out that Mary was there, but we know from the other Gospels that there were others with Mary as well. And I think it's because John was pointing out uh, the significance of Mary in this moment. Right? Matthew points to Mary Magdalene and the one who's called the other Mary. Luke points to a group of women, Mary Magdalene, the, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna, and other women. They're all mentioned in the book of, Luke's, book of Luke. Like I said, it was common for women to go to the tomb to mourn for a few days. But because of the Sabbath, they wouldn't have been there. And so they get there good and early to mourn that Sunday morning. But she doesn't go in. She doesn't go in. But instead, she goes and reports to the disciples. Let's read verse 2. So she ran. And she went to Simon Peter and the other disciples the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. It's funny that John speaks of himself that way. And the one whom Jesus loved, he says that, uh, I think he actually says that multiple times. And it's only found in his own writings. I think it's funny. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, that's John again, okay, doesn't name himself, but he's quick to point out that the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, kind of a little humble brag there, right? There's two guys running to the tomb. Let's say Peter and some other guy. I'm faster than Peter. From what we understand, from what we know from uh, church historians and scholars and pastors, it seems like Peter is quite a bit older than John, okay? Some scholars say that John was about like maybe 10, 15, maybe even 20 years older than Peter, okay? So there's a good reason. It'd be like me and Josh running a race, probably, okay? Don't tell him this, but I think I'm still faster than Josh. <laughs> I didn't know he was in the room. So remember, at this point in the text, we're not talking about resurrection yet. We just know that he's gone. Right? She goes and reports. She sees the tomb. She doesn't go into the tomb. She doesn't even look into the tomb. She sees that the stone is rolled away, and she goes back to report. We're not really sure how far away the disciples were staying. Some scholars, like, half a mile, mile, somewhere in there. Like, we don't, we don't really know how far this journey was to go back and forth to the tomb. 
But at this point, we're not talking about he has risen. We're just talking about he's gone. The tomb is open. Something happened. Someone has taken Jesus' body. But at least from what we have in the text, we're not celebrating yet. It's more of a what the heck is going on? Where is he? So let's keep reading. Verse 4, it says, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Okay, so John gets there first. And as Ken points it out, he stoops down and he looks inside this tomb. He looks in and he sees the grave clothes, but he doesn't go in. Okay, now this tomb... We know from uh, other places in Scripture, this tomb was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? And he's probably a wealthy man, owner of the garden, owner of the tomb. So John chapter 19 says this. We read this uh, a couple weeks ago. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, remember him? John chapter 3, you must be born again. Comes to him by night, right? Teacher. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. So he's bringing spices for the body of Jesus as worship unto him. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and with, with, with the spices as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If you look in Matthew chapter 27, right? We get a little bit more of the picture, more, more of the story here. Verse 57 says, it was... When it was evening, there came a rich man, wealthy man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock, and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Okay, so this is Joseph's tomb. A lot of scholars think that this would be like a family tomb. He's a wealthy man. This would be a large tomb where there would be uh, the ability to lay out multiple bodies if needed to be in this tomb. Larger open area. A little platform where you would lay a body or even multiple bodies. So John looks in and he sees grave clothes. But he doesn't go in. We keep reading in verse 6. It says, Then Simon Peter came following him. Okay, old, slow Peter. Went into the tomb, right? He goes straight in, like typical Peter fashion. We've talked about Peter, right? Kind of a, kind of a gunslinger, right? Kind of like all action, like quick to speak, quick to anger. Like, you know, he gets a little fired up. He goes headlong into everything. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up and in its place, in a place by itself. Peter goes in. He also sees the, sees the grave clothes. And here we get a little more of a visual. 
clothes are there, and they're in a peculiar way. In fact, the fact that they are there would indicate that no one stole the body, right? Not the Jews, not the Romans, not the disciples, not vandals. Because if the body were stolen, no one would care to remove the linen cloths, let alone fold up the face cloth, right? Heard a story of someone within our congregation uh, in, in, in one of their old homes out of town in a, different, in a different town. They were broken into, right? I've never heard of a, a thief breaking into a house or breaking in somewhere, right? And like going through stuff and then tidying back up when they leave, right? They ransack things. They go through things. They take the valuables and they leave generally a mess. If you'd heard a few pastors scholars talk about the, clo- the, 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 the grave cloths, the linen cloths that were lying there, and how that they were laid out almost as if a body had passed right through them. So I'm thinking about this platform. You've got these linen cloths lying there, kind of the length of the body, and then near the head, over where the head would be, there are the face cloths that are neatly folded sitting there. He's not bound by those grave clothes, not bound by the grave itself, not bound by those linen cloths. Put that in contrast to the rising of Lazarus a few chapters back. Remember, I think I talked about Carmen. Remember that song, Carmen, Lazarus Come Forth? Remember Carmen? Anybody? No? All you young people, good goodness gracious. Expose you to some real music. Right? Jesus says, uh, verse uh, 43 of John chapter 11, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! A man who had died came out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind them. Let them go. Here we see Jesus' tomb. The cloths are there. He's not bound by the grave or those linen cloths. Verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, okay, not naming names, not naming himself, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. John intentional, he's been intentional in this book about believing this whole time. In his gospel, right, uh, David Gutzik points out that John is foot in, first in the foot race and he's first in the faith race. That he sees the cloths, that sees the clothes lying there, and he sees and believes. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. Okay, so John understood the fact of the resurrection before he understood the meaning and the depth and the significance of it according to the scriptures. And as we keep on reading in our text, we get to Mary Magdalene. The one who discovered the tomb, the stone that was rolled away. The disciples leave, they go back to their homes. In verse 11 it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's crying. She's weeping. She looks in, and she sees two angels. Like, 
which is amazing. Because any other time, like in scripture where there's angels, usually the first thing out of their mouth is like, don't freak out. Fear not. Okay? Like, yes, fear not. Maybe it's because her eyes are full of tears. Maybe she doesn't truly recognize them as angels. She's just overwhelmed. She doesn't put it all together. She's distraught. She's crying because he's gone. They took him, and she doesn't know where they took him to. Right? Resurrection is not on her radar. She just knows that Jesus is gone. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. Right? She didn't know. Why didn't she know? Why didn't she see Christ? Like she had walked with him and she had seen him do such awesome things. She was there when he was hanging on the cross. Why didn't she understand? Were her eyes too full of tears? Maybe she was just so distraught. Maybe she turns towards the doorway of the tomb, right? Now the sun is coming up, and so there's this figure in the doorway, and all she can see is a silhouette. But somehow, some way, she can't make out his face. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He says her name. He just simply says one word, her own name, and all of a sudden... It all clicks. She calls her name. Like, she didn't recognize him up to this point, but when he spoke her name, it all clicks. I know that voice. I've heard him call that name before. I felt the care in that voice. I felt the care in his touch. Like, I know that name. I know that voice. She turned to him at once, said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She probably collapsed to the ground and grabbed onto him, held on tight, just like a little kid, like a little child, like my five-year-old when I have to leave the house. She's the sweetest. It's so hard to get out of the house. Ron should grab onto me. No, don't leave. Don't leave. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I've, but I've got a job for you. I've got a mission for you. I've got some words that you need to proclaim. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. What's amazing is that the very first herald of the risen Lord is Mary. He picked Mary. He chose Mary of Magdala. Do you remember her? Do you remember Mary Magdalene? So there's a lot of speculation in, uh, in, in the Christian world about who Mary Magdalene was, right? Where she fits in Scripture. Some people think that she is the woman in Luke chapter 7. You've probably even said that. You may have read this. You may have heard this. You may have heard preachers preach this, that in Luke chapter 7, right? And it's not explicit or conclusive evidence, but some people think that she's the woman in Luke 7, right? That sinful woman who interrupts Jesus' dinner at a Pharisee's house. 
She's described as a woman of the city. Where That's a nice way to say a harlot. Someone who sleeps around, probably a prostitute. She's there at this Pharisee's house, and she's worshiping Jesus through tears and anointing his feet with ointment. She loved much because she was forgiven much. A lot of teachers, a lot of church traditions would say that that was Mary Magdalene. Sometimes Mary is also associated with the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. The woman that was used, we talked about this months ago now. She was used by the Pharisees as a pawn to try to trap Jesus in his words. Caught in the middle of adultery, we talked about how you don't just catch someone in adultery. It's got to be witnessed by multiple people, so they probably set her up so that they could go to Jesus and try to trap him in his own words. They go to Jesus. They say, our law says to stone her. What do you say? And so he stoops down and he writes on the ground. You don't know what he wrote. He stands up and he says, let you without sin. You have got no sin. You cast the first stone. And they left one by one. The older, the older ones first. Until it was just Jesus and her standing there. So we're... Where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Some church traditions hold that that was Mary Magdalene. And again, it's Christian speculation. We don't know it for sure. But what we do know is this. Mary Magdalene was a follower of Jesus. She was a follower of Jesus, and she was a follower of Jesus after Jesus healed her, not of one, not of two, not of three, four, five, or six, but of seven demons. She's a woman stricken with seven demons. Luke chapter 8 tells us this. You ever felt bound by something? Ever, ever felt like you just couldn't beat something? Maybe there's some sort of sin that's got a grip on you, some addiction that's got a, a grip on you, something that you've struggled with for a long time, or maybe you still do today. How about some demons? How about seven demons? You want to talk about bondage? You want to talk about a hold and a grip? How about seven demons? There is freedom from sin. There is freedom from addiction. There is freedom from shame. There is power to overcome because Jesus overcame. His spirit is alive in us and it breaks the bond and gives us power to also overcome. That power, that spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive in his church. The scriptures tell us so. Mary experienced the power of Jesus in freeing her from seven demons. She loved Jesus. She followed Jesus. She witnessed nearly everything he did. She witnessed his crucifixion. She saw him beaten, mocked, scorned. She saw him breathe his last. And here, in an empty tomb, again, she experiences that same power. She hears that same power, that overcoming power of Jesus. 
the power that loosed her of the evil spirits, she experiences that same power right now here in an empty tomb in the sweetest way possible. And just one word. He says her voice, Mary. Today, ever since Friday night, our worship night at our house, man, if you missed Friday night, you missed out. It's just a sweet time of worship and prayer in our house. It was wonderful and beautiful. And Chris actually read a little bit of this text and pointed to it. That resurrection power that is found in Christ Jesus. That Mary is looking face to face. She's clinging to him. It's that same power that raised from the dead. That's the same power that freed her from her demons. Today, hear him call your name. See his great love for you and his power that is in him for you. As I've been saying over the last few weeks, personalize it. We don't serve a God who's some far off being that wants us to sing and dance to get his approval. That's religion. Like, religion is man's attempt to get to God. That we got to say the right things, we got to do the right things, we got to do like so that God will look at us with favor. We got to pray the right way, I got to dress the right way, I got to do the right things. The whole point of Christianity, the whole point of the gospel is that we could never, ever, ever get to God. There's nothing I can say ever on a Sunday morning to motivate your flesh enough to be okay with God. But God came down to us. God came down to us in Jesus Christ. And he still comes to us today and he whispers names. He calls you by name. He calls you by name. He calls me by name. Today it's my prayer that we would hear him call our name and believe the resurrection. Believe his love for you. Believe his power to save, redeem, restore, and resurrect you. And then we would live in light of that. The resurrection, proclaiming Christ Jesus, proclaiming his resurrection is the greatest news ever. And Jesus picked someone who was, at least on the surface, very unworthy to do that. What an awesome thing it is to be called of Jesus. What an awesome thing it is to be chosen by him. I hope that if you're in this room and you've experienced the power of Christ, the salvation power of Christ in your life, you also understand the beautiful message that you carry that when you go out of these, out of these walls for, on a Sunday morning and you head into another work week, that you proclaim the risen Lord just as Mary did. That you carry with you the awesome news of Jesus, the power of Christ. It's important for us to know and to believe the resurrection so that we can take that resurrection message with us wherever we go. I'm going to read for you a couple of uh, scriptures. The importance of the resurrection. Romans chapter 10, 
Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we talked about his lordship, his kingship over the last couple of weeks. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Think about Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts. I look at its content. It's pretty remarkable, right? The Holy Spirit comes over the church, ignites the church. They're pouring out into the streets. Peter starts preaching, and he says this. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? So he was delivered up. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How beautiful is that? Think about 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Personalize this. Who by God's power being guarded through faith, by God's power guarding you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How awesome is our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I usually preach this text around Easter time. I'm just going to read a few verses here, starting in verse 1. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. But I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, right? All of these wonderful eyewitness to the power and the resurrection of Jesus, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as, one to un, as, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. First importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised goes on later in that chapter to talk about if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, that our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But guess what? Christ was raised. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And today, hear him call your name. Fall at his feet and embrace him as Lord experience that same spirit, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, and then go out of this place proclaiming that you have seen the risen Lord, that you've experienced the salvation that comes from him. Go out of this place, just like Mary went out of that tomb, proclaiming to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come, and we're going to worship. I'm going to pray.
And then we're going to respond. We're just going to worship. We're going to pray together. If you're in this room and you need prayer, please come see me. I'll be up in this corner over here somewhere. I'd love to pray with you. What is your, like, has the resurrection been reserved for Easter in your mind? Do you live in the reality of the resurrection every day? Amen. Are you walking in that? Do you understand the power and the reality for you? The power and the spirit of Christ that lives in you, that same resurrection power. If you're struggling with something, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling in any way possible, do you realize that because of Christ and because he has conquered death, the most formidable foe, that he has stamped it, that it is truly finished and that his sacrifice has been received by the Father, that it's all done, do you realize what that means for you and me? We have to walk in the reality of the resurrection. Hear him call your voice and respond to him. Don't just relegate this to a season. Don't just relegate this to Sundays. Don't just relegate this to Easter. But walk in the reality and the power of the resurrection. I'm going to pray. I'll invite you to stand. We'll worship. If you'd like prayer. If you want to pray with your neighbors in your row, feel free to do that, but I'll be up here too. Go ahead. Feel free to stand. There's some confusion there. Sorry. I'll pray and then we'll sing together. Father, thank you for this morning. I do thank you, God, for your word. And I thank you for your spirit alive in your people. I thank you, God, that we have good historical data God, that you in fact rose, that there were witnesses, hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Like even the skeptics, even those that would try to say, no, someone came and took the, but like there was no body found. If the enemies of Christ were trying to dupe the followers of Christ, there would have been a body that was manifest at some point. Thanks be to God. You truly, you truly are risen. And you ascended, and you are our advocate with the Father. And your spirit is alive in your people. God, I pray that we would hear you call our name. That we would hear your voice. And God, that we would respond in worship of you we would respond in declaring the good news that he is alive and he's alive in me. God, for those in this room today that are struggling, that are struggling with bondage, maybe addiction, maybe sin, whatever it is, God, today I pray that they would experience the power, the resurrection power of Jesus. God, that you would free them just as you freed Mary. As you freed Mary of seven demons. God, free us from our sin. Free us from our bondage. Let us experience the life and the power that is found in you. And God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would be a vibrant church, empowered by your Spirit, proclaiming the risen Lord. Help us to respond to you.
Help us to walk in you. Help us to live in you. God, help us to be your church to the glory of your name. We love you. We thank you. Let's sing together. Hallelujah.